Welcome to Open to Hope Radio with your host, Dr. Gloria Horsley, brought to you by the Open to Hope Foundation with the mission of helping people find hope after loss. This show has been edited for your convenience. Now, Open to Hope Radio. Today our topic is Surviving the Death by Suicide of a Sibling, and my guest is Michelle Lynn Gust, writer, speaker, teacher, and survivor of her sister Denise's suicide. She is author of Do They Have Bad Days in Heaven, Surviving the Suicide Loss of a Sibling. Michelle is director of the New Mexico Suicide Survivors and serves as a co-chair of the New Mexico Suicide Coalition. Michelle, welcome to Healing the Grieving Heart. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed reading your book, um, Do They Have Bad Days in Heaven, Surviving the Suicide Loss of a Sibling. I liked how straightforward you were and honest about your experience as a bereaved sibling. I've had talked to parents who've had children die uh, by suicide, but I have never talked to a sibling or really read about it, and I found it so interesting because I find that siblings are really out there with the death of their sibling and able to talk about some of the feelings of anger or frustration or, uh, that has happened to them. And I especially liked your journal. Well, I thought it was really important when I wrote this book because there hadn't been anything for my siblings and for me. And you, our relationship with her was different than the relationship we had that our parents had with her. And, you know, it's mostly my story more than my sister's and my brother's. But I really thought it was important to, especially the other thing is that I did write the book. The book ended up being published about almost 10 years after her death. And I, you can't really recreate those emotions in the same way. And so that was why I thought it was important to include the journal because I had such a, I just remember such a feeling of, you know, we had shared so much and suddenly these things were gone, but there were things that were important to us. And I'd hear songs on the radio and TV shows and they're little things, but those are big things that you lose a connection to somebody with. Yeah, could, could you tell us a little bit about your sister, about Denise's suicide and how it happened and uh, something around that? Well, she was 17 when she died. She was two weeks from turning 18 and two months from graduating from high school. She had attempted suicide about, I believe it was about five months before she died, and the first attempt was 250 aspirin. And it then came out that she was suffering from some depression, and she was also bulimic, meaning she would consume a large number of calories at once and then purge it up. And she was um, then put into a psychiatric hospital, and I I came home. I was off at college, and I came home at Thanksgiving, and I remember talking to her, and she said, I'm really trying to get a hold on this whole issue I have with food. But what happened that most people didn't know until after she died, including the bulk of our family, was that at Christmas time she was date raped by a boy she knew. Oh my and I really believe that at some point between January and when she died in March, she made up her mind and said, I can live about 60 more days. I can't do 60 more years. I'm 17 years old. What else is going to happen to me? And on March 17, 1993, she actually walked out of her high school and um, waited for a freight train to hit her. Wow. That's an incredible, incredible shock for you and your family and community. It, it, you know, it changed everything. And I always, you know, I was 21 at the time. And, you know, this was the sister I shared a room with for 10 years who I thought would be there forever because, you know, I was three and a half years older than her. 
and suddenly she was gone. And, and I always thought the grief, you know, I'd always heard this one year of mourning. And so I thought, okay, well, after a year, I'll be fine. I had no idea that it would really take three years before I felt normal. And I've since found that that's a very true statement, um, particularly for suicide survivors, that it's about three years of grieving because it's so complicated with the fact that it's self-inflicted death. Mm-hmm. So that's the three years you're thinking as a sibling, uh, what you're seeing with other siblings. And not even just siblings, anyone who survived a suicide. Yeah. There's been actually a little bit of research that... Yeah. Well, I find that parents uh, tend to grieve um, sort of endlessly uh, about some of these issues. But I think what you're, what you're keying in on is the fact that you do start building your strength again to right. go on... Not that you forget, right. not that you stop grieving, but that then you um, are able to do other things, maybe concentrate, uh, think right. about your life or whatever. Could you talk about going to the site? Uh, because there are some people who do believe that you shouldn't uh, talk to people or interview people about the site or the suicide note or, you know, that it's almost politically incorrect to do that. But I noticed that uh, in your book you have it and, I, and that you actually read the suicide note to some of the students that you were teaching. Yeah, I um, I re- I had to go to the site multiple times, and the first time I went, and I went with one of Denise's best friends, and I had to see, I had no intention of killing myself, but I had to see the force of a train, and I, you know, I had been around them, they're, you know, they're, they're right by where my parents live, she died about a mile and a half away, but they do come right by the neighborhood where my parents live, but it was one of those things where I just had to be, you know, I had to be there, I had to see it. And and I also had to be where she last was alive. And so Christy and I had gone once, and I remember, and I think a train just happened to come by, and we stood and we watched. But I went back two days before the first Christmas without her, and I remember standing on the tracks, and I don't have the specific spot where she died, but I had to be, you know, she I had to be where she was last alive. And... You know, I found comfort in that because that was going to be our first Christmas without her, and that was huge. Mm-hmm. Now, did you uh, see her uh, after she died, or was it a closed coffin? No, it was closed, and um, they actually identified her through fingerprints. My mm-hmm. mom had had us fingerprinted as children. It was a, a kidnapping thing, and I remember I thought I didn't want to go, and I thought it was stupid, and I was probably 10. And, and now it's like, thank God that she did that because nobody had to actually go and identify her. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of a community. It wasn't a kidnapping of your family. It was kind of a community thing? or Yes, yeah. They had a thing mm-hmm. at one of the schools on a Saturday or something. You know, you could take your kids and get them all fingerprinted. Mm-hmm. And this is back in probably the early, early 80s, maybe the late 70s. And my mom had hung on to those. I remember the, the fingerprint sat in the drawer next to the phone in the kitchen where all the, the coupons were, food uh-huh. coupons. And, right. you know, and so when I actually wasn't there when the police came, but... You know, I, I'm sure that I could, you know, my mom, they probably asked her if she had anything. I, mean, I know they asked her what Denise was wearing, but they needed to do a positive ID, and my mom probably fortunately remembered that she had these fingerprints for us. Mm-hmm. I was talking to you about reading your sister's suicide note, and I wanted to know what the meaning of that was for you. And uh, as I said, I know you've shared it with classes you've taught before. Well, I think that, you know, there's there's a lot of myths around suicide notes, and one thing is, you know, there's very few that are left. There's only about 20%, I believe, the people who actually leave a note, and you know, people have a tendency to think that they're that you they're very like angry, and they are sometimes. But my sister's note um, was not dated, 
it was written, it was not hastily written, so that's another reason we believe that she had planned her death. And, you know, and her note is really, I believe it's about trying to make everyone else feel better. You know, and I, I guess that, you know, and I, I, you know, I wasn't there with Denise. I don't know what she was thinking. But in some way, she probably hoped that this would help ease the pain, you know, having no idea what her death would do to our family. Mm-hmm. Would you like to read it for us? Sure. And I'll go ahead. To everyone I love, well, I wasn't going to write a note, but I figured that was rude. I want you all to know I appreciate the help you gave, but I just couldn't accept it. It's something that is wrong with me, no one else. No one could have done anything. Mom and Mom, Dad, thank you for 17 years of living. Thank you for all you gave me. Brian, Karen, Michelle, thank you for caring for me and watching out for me. And to all my friends who I turn to, you know who you are. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I love you all. Pray for me so hopefully I will go to heaven. And as the song goes, just think of me and I'll be there. Love, Denise. Oh, my goodness. And there's actually a a P.S. P.S. Please do not think you should have said I love you one more time. I know you all love me, but I don't love myself. Remember the good times. Think of how happy I will be. I love you all. I'll miss you. I think um, one thing that's really interesting and it really says something about my sister, because obviously I had 17 years with her, is, you know, I wasn't going to write a note, but I figured that was rude. And right. <laughs> the little are along with it. Yeah, and I mean, I haven't actually, you know, I don't, you know, go back and, and look at the note very often, and but now that I look at it, it just sort of gives me a, a chuckle. It's a good mm-hmm. chuckle because, you know, it's nice to be able to, to remember some, some things, and, and now I'm, I'm thinking, and that just sounds like Denise, you know. I just, I thought that would be rude if I didn't leave a note. and But I, like I said, she she didn't want anyone to feel guilty, and, you know, th- that's just not possible, though. She, but, uh, yeah, talk about that guilt a little bit for us. Well, there's so much, in su- particularly in suicide, because we call it the could've, would've, should've, and, you know, we always look back, and hindsight's twenty twenty. you know, and we, there's so much that we we think, oh, well, what if we had done this differently, as, as parents think, what if we had raised our child differently, or we did you know, we made decisions, we didn't, you know, we made such and such a decision instead of what we actually did. And with siblings, I think the guilt a lot of time is you think your siblings are going to be there. You think they're going to be there and you're going to grow old together and you're going to share, you know, so much time with them. And and suddenly that's ripped away. And I, you know, I like I said before the break, I really thought Denise would always be here. And right. And there's that natural ambivalence, as I was mentioning when I was talking in the beginning. There's a natural ambivalence, a natural competition. I mean, that's where you learn how to get along and how to fight and how to, you know, your sibling is kind of like uh, the opportunity to learn how you're first to deal with the world. And I, I really believe that, and I didn't know, you know, I hardly knew anything about sibling relationships until years after death when I started to look at it. But we do. We learn so much from our siblings. And, you know, we were really raised together because the next oldest in the family is six years older than me, and she was ten years older than Denise. So, And and then the oldest, um, there was only a year between Brian and Karen, the two oldest, and then I was number three. So we were really raised together, Denise and I. And, you know, we shared a room for ten years. We, you know, we learned so much about life from each other. And, you know, you take that for granted. And, you know, yeah, there's Denise, a... A little saying that goes, uh, we were really close, but we didn't know it then. 
Right. And, I, you know, if Denise were here today, I probably wouldn't even admit that, you know, that I learned so much <laughs> right. from her. And, you know, cause yeah. you, you don't realize. Well, tell me about uh, how it is for a family when there is a death by suicide and the police, and not the police, but I guess kind of the suicide SWAT team moves in and to make sure it doesn't happen to anyone else and... Well, I, I think in our in our country, we have traditionally not been very good to our families. And we, a lot of ways we still aren't. I still get horrible. To the suicide families. Yeah, and mm-hmm. I mean, I, I'm still getting stories of, and I just had one yesterday about a family that had a suicide over the weekend, a very poor family, and they did not want to clean up what was left behind. And they were told that a company, they, they were not, I live in New Mexico in Albuquerque this and they live in a town a couple hours outside of Albuquerque, and they were told the only um, company that could come clean it up was in Albuquerque, and they'd have to pay for it. And this family's already been traumatized by their loss. And suddenly it's like, well, no, either you clean it up or you pay for it. And, you know, then they're becoming more traumatized because they have to clean it up because they can't afford to pay to have somebody come do it. And it's those sort of things that, you know, we still have TV cameras that show up in front of houses where there's been suicides, we we just have not been good to the families, and it's because there's so much a stigma that still surrounds suicide and about mental illness. And, you know, I know that we've gotten better. I know that since Denise died in 1993, we have come an incredibly long way, but we still have a really long way to go. And our families really need help because it changes everything in a family because suddenly one member's gone, and it was a suicide. It wasn't – it's so difficult because you can't – you know, I wished for something to blame, and at one time we had thought early on after she died, someone had suggested it might be the Prozac she was taking. And mm-hmm. this was again, this is 1993 when they were really starting to dole out prescription or antidepressants, and we got excited. And as strange uh-huh. as that sounds, but it was like, oh, we can blame something, you know, rather than have you know knowing that Denise had been the one to make that choice to end her life, mm-hmm. and. We just got we got excited and how we wished for something and and that's one of a, that's a huge issue for a family and whether that person was you know it's not you know many many times people have been drinking you know they've been um, consuming alcohol because and that lowers their inhibitions they may be you know doing some sort of, some sort of drugs um, or they but may you want to find a reason right didn't you say something about that uh you wanted to blame the Prozac but then you found that her bottle was full she hadn't been taking it yeah there and they actually had not, and then when the toxicology came back they didn't find anything so she had no levels of Prozac that is very interesting because there are many people who you know want to say that they wouldn't have died had they taken Prozac and then there are people who say you know that they died because they took Prozac right or or you know whatever medication Prozac's uh, right. not to say anything about Prozac Right, that just happens to be the one that it just happens to be on. the antidepressant we're talking about. But any antidepressant, if they took an antidepressant, they wouldn't kill themselves. If they take it, you know, it's because of the antidepressant. So as you say, you're trying to find reason, make sense out of this, make sense out of uh, what do they call it, a, a permanent solution to a temporary problem. Right, yeah. right. Um, I wanted to ask you a little bit. Didn't you say that uh, they had the kids at school go in on Saturday or something? Yeah, they actually that she died on well she died on Thursday and they had had Friday off and so what they did on Saturday and because it was then in the, the local the town that we grew up in is thirty miles outside of Chicago, it's a suburb. And they had um so what they did it was in the newspaper 
and they allowed, they had the counselors and they had the school open so that the students could come in if they needed to talk because there was no telling, you know, who knew, who found out. And, and the funeral, the wake was on Monday, and the funeral, I believe, was on Tuesday. And um, we actually, I remember we went by. It was my older sister and me and a friend of mine. I think it was the three of us had gone. I, you know, it's again, it's been 12 and a half years, and so many of these details get lost, after, mm-hmm. you know, when you're dealing with some emotion, so much emotion. And I, one thing I remember is I didn't go with to... Um, get the the um, go to the funeral home and to get to pick out the casket and I remember the the high school principal who actually I had graduated with the son and I remember he called and he was so upset and he you know and I just remember hearing it in his voice um, it was mm-hmm. you know it's a big school it was at that time it was about I, it's bigger now but I believe um, it was about 2,500 students at that time. And you know, he said, "This is a time we come a, become a small community." And Denise's um, graduating class. There's a story, and I don't know if this is still true because we're time at the early 90s. It's 2005. Each class had would have at least one person die. We're talking about about 500 students in a class. Mm-hmm. And Denise's class was almost that first class, I believe, to not have someone die until she died, and she died just a few months before graduation. Mm-hmm. So difficult for the whole school. And you were a, a little, you kind of resented it that people had to do that because of her. Did, didn't you say yeah, about it, that in your journal? Yeah. It, yeah, because, you know, there, you know, I'm sure it's Saturday. We don't get many Saturdays, you know, and I resented the fact that people were there when they had other things that they probably wanted to do. And, um, you know, they, and here they were just suddenly having to work through something and help other people work through something. We have a guest and it is Heather from Atlanta. Hi, Heather. Hi, Heather. Hi, Michelle. Hi. And uh, you're from Atlanta, Georgia. Did you have a question for Denise or myself? I mean, excuse uh, me, Michelle. I called it, you. You know what? Name. I bet my sister loves the fact that I can call <laughs> Denise because she always got called Michelle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, we wish uh, Denise could answer. If you had a question for her, that would be very good. <laughs> Do you have a question for Michelle, Heather? Um, well, I just wanted to call in, and um, I have, I'm have. i a sibling survivor myself. I lost oh. my brother to suicide. And oh, I'm I just sorry. Wanted, I, thank you. I just wanted to call in and... Um, and thank Michelle because she was kind of the first um, the first piece of hope I saw when I read her book a few years ago. And um, and just to know that there's a lot of support out there, um, I just wanted to, to kind of let anybody that li- is listening know because there is so much support out there and sometimes you have to search a little bit for it, but it's there. Now, and Heather, what did you find in her book that was particularly helpful, do you remember, or just that well, somebody... I remember in general it was, and I had been warned at first when my brother first died that the sibling has a very difficult role in all of this. We're kind of left out, and um, a lot of the, the compassion and the the sympathy goes to other people sometimes. And take care of your parents, right? Right, exactly. And be good to them. And, um, and when I read Michelle's book, it was the first time that I had seen or read or heard kind of exactly what I was feeling and what I was going through. And that was just a huge relief to me that I'm not in this alone and other people, other siblings have, have done the same thing. Now, do you hear a lot from people, uh, siblings, Michelle? Yes. Yeah, they I, email you? I do, and there's a, my website, siblingsurvivors.com, has a message board, and it amazes me. I don't, I don't 
often get to check it because I'm, you know, because of my schedule. But when I go in, it's incredible how many people have, you know, written their whole story and say, well, you know, if anybody wants to email me and, you know, and you have siblings who, you know, end up becoming friends and they find support in each other because a lot of the stories are very similar um, just in certain, you know, in terms of relationships. You know, like if, if somebody lost a sister versus somebody lost a brother. Mm-hmm. Well, Heather, thank you so much for calling thank in you, on Heather. the show. We really appreciate it. Oh, thank you both. And take thank care you. of yourself. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Uh, yes, the Compassionate Friends also has their um, some sibling groups also that are helpful for people to get together, and the Internet is such a wonderful way to be able to make contact. Um, we were talking about before break about a little humor. Uh, I, I think that uh, I know when my son died, there are there is some humor in it and some belly laughs occasionally, and then there's the guilt from laughing. But um, could you talk a little bit about uh, Denise's driver's license? I thought that was um, sweet. Uh, well, I have to admit that I I don't remember the whole story now, but what I do remember is that Denise got a speeding ticket. Um, she went down to the Illinois State to, I guess, they, I don't know if they went down, I don't know, she went down with some friends. And the part I don't remember is, I guess, if my parents knew about the speeding ticket or not, which I don't know that they did, but um, in the book I say that my dad had stopped the payment on the speeding ticket because she had died. And subsequently, they, they got a letter, uh, you know, like a month after she died, saying her driver's license had been suspended. And, you know, we all sort of laughed about that because... You know, obviously she wasn't here anymore. And but it was those things, you know, those little things that that we, you know, we could still laugh about and say, you know, well, she's not here. You know, what are they going to do? Come and take her away? Right. I know that uh, you actually wrote to her in in your journal in a letter and said something like, um, "I just wanted you to know that you don't have a valid driver's right. license anymore." <laughs> right. So it's like you know you're not going anywhere. <laughs> And uh, I know the other thing that you, that when I read your book, that you were a bit annoyed with her about was that she would keep her dental appointment cards. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, I was the one who cleaned out her room. And this girl, I mean, the morning, I remember the day of her funeral, my mom let, there were so many kids who came, and mom let them all up into her room. I mean, nobody knew, nobody knew what they were doing. You know, we were all just sort of, there and and they they stood in the middle of a room looking around and and I remember thinking that she had all this laundry and I was like you know and obviously she had just walked out you know that one morning and left and not come back mm-hmm. and and my sister so to say my sister was not the neatest person in the world and we had shared like I said we shared a room for ten years and I was actually the sister put the tape down the middle and <laughs> you know I actually taped her off a path in and part of that was because I couldn't stand the fact that she was not very neat. But she just kept so much stuff, and some and one of the things that she had kept was all her dental appointment cards, which obviously I didn't know until I started cleaning out her closet. And you know, it was like, well, why did you keep all this stuff? And but I think that that also, you know, I've had twelve and a half years to reflect on a lot of things, and now that I sit here and think about it, I think that may have had something to do with the way she felt that she was holding on to, you know, certain 
things in her life, and that was really important to her. Mm-hmm. And how yeah? How was it decided that you would be the person who um, cleaned out the room? That's one of the um, things we always talk about. You know, issues about when do you clean out the room? Who does it? You know, um, I know that I let my son's friends all go up and take something, and I know one of my daughters was not happy that I did that. But, you know, it's such a spontaneous thing, and when it's gone, it's gone. So I don't know, uh, how did that, was that decided in your family? You know, I don't know exactly how it was decided. Um, and, you know, my mom and my sister might have a different version, my other, my older sister. But what I remember is that we did, I remember the three of us, going through some of her things, and, and we took, we basically, the first thing we did, we, we took back things we'd given her for Christmas, and I remember doing that, or birthdays, um, and I remembered that there was a Cubs t-shirt I'd given to her, and I know my sister Karen, I believe, I'm most positive she took that, and we sort of, you know, said, okay, well, if you want this, and 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 we took the, like, she, I had worked at Eddie Bauer, and she had bought, like, a ski jacket, and I took that, and I still have it, actually, and sometimes wear it in the winter, um, but I, I don't, I think part of it was because I was, my older sister was not living at home, and my mom was working, and I think it was because I was between going off to, I spent the summer after she died at the Olympic Training Center in, in Colorado Springs, and I think it was because I was home. And even though we had divvied up some of her stuff already, there was just so much, and I remember it took a few times to actually get through all of it. And there was no hurry, mm-hmm. um, more than it was, you know, and we also wanted to give back things to her friends, you know, that were theirs. And um, I don't remember there being any hurry on it other than the fact that I was there and, and I had the time to do it. Mm-hmm. So you were training to be an Olympic runner? No, I was um, um, I was doing my internship. I had, to have a, I had to have a journalism internship to graduate from Ball State where I went to school. And um, I did it with USA Boxing. And I used to have people say, well, so you were a sparring partner. And I used to say, no. <laughs> I did things like send faxes and, you know, oh. <laughs> media kinds of things. And um, so it, and it was interesting that I that, that happened because Denise and I, Mom had worked for the old Midway Airlines out of Midway Airport in Chicago, and we used to go on all these trips when I was in high school and Denise was in junior high. And one of the places she'd taken us was Colorado Springs to go to the Olympic Training Center. I had known somebody who was doing an athletic um, trainer internship there, and I just... I just loved it out there, and um, Denise knew how important that was to me, and it was interesting because I applied for this internship, and I got the internship three weeks after she died. Uh-huh. And, you know, and I actually did not tell my boss until I got there that I just lost my sister, and he told me at the end of the internship, he said, you know, if you had told me before you came, I wouldn't have let you come. But I knew that that was important for me to go, and Denise knew that was important that I go to. And you felt like she was supporting you on her own? Yeah, and a lot of a lot of interesting things that um, have been really people who've been important in my life came out of that. One woman is Loretta Archibald, who is one of the founders of the the suicide survivor movement here in the United States, and she was in Colorado Springs, and I got to meet Loretta and went to her support group, and we formed a friendship. You know, so you actually went there and found a support group for yourself. Yeah, I was lucky because they didn't have one in in Muncie, Indiana, and so that was the only experience until I moved to New Mexico. Um, a year and a half later that I did of going that I had of going to a support group. Well, could you talk a little bit about um, the fact that you uh, that a person who has a sibling die by suicide or whatever is kind of a double orphan? They lose their parent and their sibling. Yeah, what happens is is you know, obviously the, there's a sibling loss, 
but then the parents are just so encompassed by their grief of the child, the child they've lost, that they forget about their children, their surviving children. And I can't tell you how many times where I've spoken, you've know, done a talk, and the parents will come up to me and go, "I had no idea that my children were going, my surviving children were going through this." Because I remember one woman told me that she just all she could do was lay in bed, mm-hmm. and she had just totally forgotten about her other children, and so we call it double orphans. Mm-hmm. Because suddenly they're without their parental support system. And too. certainly the, the support system that they knew right. has, has changed. Yeah. Um, how about uh, you also talk about relationships, that people need to be careful of forming uh, maybe romantic relationships in the first year? You know, and I this is something that nobody ever seems to touch on, and I I think that this is one of the most important things to tell somebody. and. You are going through so much, and there, you know, and it's not even ultimately just a year long. It's a lifelong journey, and you, when you're going through all these emotions and dealing with this loss and having to reconfigure your life and what you believe in, because you're suddenly there's a piece of a pie in your family that's gone, and the family has to refig- you know, figure out how to cut this new pie in a new way that you don't need to be involved in a romantic, a new re- romantic relationship. It's already stressful to continue any relationships that were going on before. And chances are the person that you are, you are not, you're going to change. You well, know, change, it, yeah. You know, even, I had people tell me that I would be the same person, and I, I'm not the, I wasn't the same person. First of all, tell us how we can get your book. Uh, there's a there's a lot of ways you can get it. Uh, one is my website, www.siblingsurvivors.com. That's um, single sibling, not siblings, but siblingsurvivors.com. You can you know it's available on Amazon, and you can go to any bookstore. And there's no reason why somebody can't order this. Occasionally, I'll get a story and be told, well, you know, I was told they can't order it. That's not true. There's no reason we get orders for it. You know, all around the world, actually. And it's just, you know, someone needs to be helpful to do that. And, but, um, so it's pretty widely available. And Now, um, you were telling me that you're getting a Ph.D., and what are you doing now with the state uh, um, of New I, Mexico, right? I'm doing a multitude of things. Um, I'm working at a Ph.D. in family studies at the University of New Mexico. And I'm actually um, working on another book for families because we've really neglected the family as a unit and what happens. We've talked about the relationships, like I've done the sibling but we haven't talked about what happens to that unit, you know, in that system when there's been a loss and, and how to help families come back together and because everybody's going to grieve differently. And we have a lot of interest in New Mexico in suicide. We have one of the highest rates in the nation. And um, this last year we had some funding come down, and we're currently um, we're doing some survivor trainings to educate people how to work with survivors. We're doing a, the um, assist training, which is... Um, one of, I think one of the best suicide prevention trainings that we have. It's used by our military and around the world, and we're doing a lot of training. We've got a local University of New Mexico as a crisis line. We're trying to get um, statewide, and I mean, it's just it's just really keeping us busy. And it's exciting, but it's also somewhat overwhelming. Mm-hmm. Uh, I bet you you never in your life thought you'd be doing this kind of thing. No, it's amazing where we go, isn't it? It is amazing, and I, I, um, I even thought that once my book was out, I didn't think I'd still be here, and now I'm going to be writing another book on suicide. And I, you know, I, I, I have other books that I intend to write, and I don't know how many suicide books will come after that, but um, I've got at least two more that that are not suicide related, and you know, I, I just don't know where life holds, and I've, I've got enough work right now 
Um, I also edit the Surviving Suicide for the American Association of Suicidology. Ah. Now, I wanted to ask you a question, and I talked to you about it before. Um, uh, what? Tell me about, we all say uh, they committed suicide, but now I understand that that is politically incorrect. In fact, I even know you say it once in your journal, Denise, you committed or something, and but now that is not politically correct. Um, yeah. Could you talk about that a little bit? Sure. And I think if I put, I don't really, I have to go back and read the book, but I believe the only place where it is is when I was quoting something because I don't use it. And I was mm-hmm. never comfortable with it. And I was so glad when I had people tell me that there were other options. And basically the committed has the connotation of murder and of sin. And, you know, we could go on and on about all the sorts of things that come with the word committed. And and it really traumatizes survivors because, you know, it's hard enough to deal with this loss, but then to compound all these stigmas of suicide on top of it. And so what we suggest people use is died by suicide and also using suicide as a verb to say someone suicided. Some people use completed suicide. I prefer not to use that because that makes it sound like, okay, well, they tried a bunch of times before they finally succeeded. And I, I, I think that's also very difficult for survivors to hear that. But again, that's going to take time for to get the language changed. Yes, I hope that you'll be very patient with we people out there who make the mistake of saying committed suicide. I don't. I don't ever. You know. I don't ever yeah. try to change people. I. I just try to educate people when I. You yeah. know, when I do my I, talks and so forth. Yeah, I think the education is important. But the problem, I, as I see it, is it is so difficult for people to talk about it anyway. We don't want to put up another roadblock for them saying, did you tell me about your sister's death? Or Because I think you did want to talk about it, right? Right. Do you know what I'm saying? Right, yeah. And I, I know that, it, it, like I said, anything takes time, and I don't ever get mad at people for saying it. I don't correct people. But when I, you know, when I do workshops, I say, okay, well, this is why we do this. And, and I have a lot of friends who have actually changed. They're like, you know, I never thought about it. And oh, so I've really- changed. I've certainly changed and just... Uh, been educated recently on the on the topic, so absolutely. Um, I, I've got to hurry and get to the point. I ask you: Do you feel like we missed anything before we end the show? The only quick thing I'd like to say is that siblings typically have to carry this loss for a long way, and it's really important that siblings and people who are trying to help them help them find ways to remember that sibling and to tell the funny stories. We talked about the humor. I mean, I so appreciate still telling funny stories about Denise, but also little things whether it be bringing, you know, something like seashells back, you know, from somewhere somebody's been back to the grave, but just those little things that some people that people can do to, you know, because their siblings still a part of them. They were part of their growing up years, um, which are so important in who we become. And people don't, you know, they don't want to forget, and they shouldn't have to forget how important they were to them. Mm-hmm. Thank you. That was a uh, wonderful thought. Do you... Um, do, how do you want people to talk about your sister dying? Do you want them to question? What kind of questions early on did you want them to ask that were okay? Um, I didn't care what anybody asked. And I used to teach uh, high school health, and I would say, you can ask me anything. And I had the boy who raped her was actually an, an immigrant from Italy. And I actually had one student say, do you hate immigrants? You know, And you know, mm-hmm. for a 14-year-old, that was you know, she wanted to know, and so I tell people, I, you know, you could, which I don't hate immigrants, by the way, but, and I didn't at that time either, and, but I think that at that time, I, you know, ask me anything, and, um, you know, and now, um, 
you know, now I talk about it so much, I'm at a different, obviously at a different place, and I, I just really enjoy telling the stories about her, you know, but I don't have that need to tell the story about what happened, but if people want to know, you know, I'm more than willing to tell people. Well, I would suggest to everyone that they get Michelle's book, and for no other reason, that picture on the front of your book is incredibly precious. Thank you. And my mom actually likes to tell people that um, that kitchen floor is still there because <laughs> it's taken in the kitchen. It, and it's Denise and Michelle sitting in a laundry basket. Well, uh, it's time to close the show now, and I want to thank my guest today, who's been Michelle Lynn Gust, Bree's sister of Denise and author of Do They Have Bad Days in Heaven? surviving the suicide loss of a sibling. Denise, thank you so much for being on the show. It, it's so important to hear the siblings' voices, and it, especially on such a difficult topic as death by suicide. And I want to thank you so much and also tell you how much I appreciate the work you're doing with well, these Thank families. you for having me, and I appreciate the work that you're doing because without shows like this, siblings don't get to be heard. You have been listening to Open to Hope Radio. You can sign up for our newsletter, Facebook, and Twitter on our homepage at opentohope.com.